morning. Um, scripture reading today will be Exodus 21, 33, through um, chapter 22, verse 15. In your pew Bibles, that's page 62. Again, that's Exodus 21, verse 33, um, till chapter 22, verse 15. When a man opens a pit, or when a man digs a pit and does not cover it, and an ox or a donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restoration. He shall give money to its owner, and the dead beast shall be his. When one's man, when one man's ox butts another's, so that it dies, then they shall sell the live ox and share its price. And the dead beast also they shall share. Or if it is known that the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has not kept it in, he shall repay ox for ox, and the dead beast shall be his. If a man steals an ox or a sheep, and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox, and four sheep for a, for a sheep. If a thief is found breaking in, and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether it is an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. If a man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed over, let his or lets his beast loose and feeds it in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best in his own field and in his own vineyard. If a fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that the stack grain or the standing grain or the field is consumed, he who started the fire shall make full restitution. If a man gives to his neighbor money or goods to keep safe and it is stolen from the man's house, then if the thief is found, he shall pay double. If the thief is not found, the owner of the house shall come near to God to show whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. For every breach of trust, whether it is an ox, or for a donkey, for a sheep, for a cloak, or for any kind of lost thing, of which one says, this is it, the case of both parties shall come before God. The one whom God condemns shall pay double to his neighbor. If a man gives to his neighbor a donkey or an ox, or a sheep, or any beast to keep safe, and it dies or is injured, or is give, driven away, without anyone seeing it, an oath by the Lord shall be between them both to see whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. The owner shall accept the oath, and he shall not make restitution. But if it is stolen from him, she, he shall make full restitution to its owner. If it is torn by beasts, let him bring it as evidence. He shall not make restitution for what has been torn. If a man borrows anything of his neighbor, and it is injured or dies, the owner not being with it, he shall make full restitution. If the owner was with it, he shall not make restitution. If it was hired, it came for its hiring fee. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we thank uh, the Lord for the, the reading and pray his blessing on uh, the preaching of his word. Now, among uh, Canada's greatest exports, and there are many, uh, is a home improvement celebrity named Mike Holmes. I don't know if you've come across this gentleman. For about 20 years now, 
Holmes has gone around with a film crew in tow. He's gone around to hundreds of homes in North America, homes that have some sort of major issue, like uh, leaking foundations or inadequate insulation, sagging roofs, you name it, he's seen it. And uh, whether that disaster was caused by the homeowner himself, you know, trying to save money by DIYing it, or whether it was caused by a shoddy tradesman also trying to save money and maximize profits, Holmes is the guy who comes in with his crew and fixes it. His tagline is, make it right. And that's how he comforts a, a suffering homeowner who's just discovered that he's been ripped off by a fly-by-the-night contractor. Holmes will say, the, you know, the guy that, that built your house, he put the cheapest, thinnest, lowest R-value insulation in your attic. And we're going to rip it all out, we're going to chuck it in a dumpster, and we're going to use state-of-the-art spray foam insulation top to bottom. Don't worry, we're going to make it right. And Mike Holmes has built his brand around that saying, actually. It, as a matter of fact, I, I come to find out that he's trademarked it, so I'm not even sure I'm allowed to be saying it here today. Hopefully, uh, Holmes won't mind a fellow Canuck borrowing that phrase, just at least maybe just for one sermon, because that perfectly captures, I think, the next principle that we encounter in this book of the covenant, and that is the principle of restitution. The, the practice of making things right. And this principle is going to be found, you know, all throughout the law. It's all over the place. And it's found throughout the gospel as well, as, as we hopefully will see. But it, it is especially spelled out for us in our passage today. So in about as much time as it takes to watch an episode of Homes on Homes, I'd like us to work through this passage and the principle that lies at the heart of it, restitution. And we'll tackle this in a very simple way, hopefully a simple way. We're going to just ask of the text some of the basic reporter questions. We do this from time to time. Um, questions like what, when, how, and why as it pertains to the principle of restitution. So let's look first at the what. What is restitution? In chapter 22, some form of that word appears at least six times in, in the first 15 verses. And our English word comes from the Latin compound that means to rebuild. To rebuild. Rebuilding is necessary, not just when your house is falling apart, but also when relationships have deteriorated. And there are other related words that are sometimes used in this context, uh, words like restoration or reparation. That might sound like a bad word to you, but I, I assure you it's not. That word reparation just has the idea um, of repairing something that has been broken. And that's precisely what we're dealing with in this passage today, in this section of, of the law. We're dealing with broken things, damage done because of sin. And I suppose I don't need to tell you, do I, that 
Sin is devastating. It, it leaves destruction in its wake. It hands out L's to everyone involved. And what we have in these Ten Commandments is, is God's standard, his ideal, if you will. And what we have here in this Book of the Covenant is the reality. So the ideal and then the reality. And really what is being described here is what must be done, not just if, but when bad stuff happens. For example, what do you do when a kid consistently breaks the fifth commandment and curses his father and his mother? Or what do you do when a guy covets his neighbor's ox in disobedience to the tenth commandment and actually steals it? breaking another commandment or what, what do you do when people quarrel and it comes to blows and one guy kills the other as Moses did back in the day now on, on one hand we know that our sin is ultimately against God uh, so for example in repentance of his sin with Bathsheba and in the murder of her husband, King David was able to say to the Lord, against you and you only have I sinned. You understand that our transgression incurs a debt against a holy and just and righteous God. And that is the primary offense. On the other hand, there's clearly human victims as well. Whenever we sin. Our sin causes brokenness, not just on the vertical plane, but also on the horizontal plane. And passages like this help us to understand that our sin also incurs debt to our fellow man. Because of our sin, they have lost something, whether that's property or reputation or a loved one. They've lost something. And that's a direct result of our sin or our carelessness. Restitution, then, is a requirement of biblical justice to rebuild, to repair, to restore as much as possible the loss that we have caused. The, the Lord God here lays out the responsibility that mankind has to make it right with his fellow man. That's what restitution is. That's something of the what. I, th I expect we'll learn more about it as we go through. But let's consider in the second place the when. The when. When are folks required to make restitution? In which specific cases? Well, we have in chapter 21 and chapter 22, we have a number of specific cases that outline this. And of course, it's not an exhaustive list, but the examples that the Lord brings forth here, I think, are probably sufficient so that the people of Israel and their judges could determine the principle and then kind of extrapolate that to apply that principle to whatever novel circumstances they face. And let's, let's face it, um, we... There's lots of novel circumstances that we get ourselves into when it comes to sin. And so we don't have an exhaustive list here, but we have enough so that we can get the gist of what God is after 
and in wisdom apply that to the various situations that we're presented with. So um, I guess we could just speak in, generally, in general and say that there's kind of broad categories of offenses that require restitution to be made. We'll just look at a, at a sampling here this morning. One would be assault, assault. And you can see this case, or a sample case of this, at least in chapter 21, verses 18 to 19. I'd encourage you to follow along with me when I point you to a place in, in scripture. I want you to see it for yourselves and make sure that that's uh, what it is saying. It's the, this is the case of a man who strikes someone either with a stone or a fist, but you can extrapolate that one out uh, as well, and causes significant enough injury that that injured man has to take to his bed. Now, if that man ends up dying from his injury, then the one who committed the assault must pay with his own life. You can see that in verse 12. Okay, and I'm not going to camp out on that one, but I, I want to at least just mention that God's requirement of capital punishment is operating on a very similar principle. It's the principle of uh, lex talionis, uh, or you might be more familiar with the phrase an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a life for a life, which essentially means that the punishment must fit the crime. Um, there, there's a deficit whenever sin is involved. There's a deficit that must be balanced out for justice to take place. But in, in verses 18 to 19, in the aftermath of, of this particular assault, the injured party is able to rise from his bed and go outside, albeit with the help of a, a cane. But in that, that case, the, the one who committed the assault is cleared. You know, he's, he's saying, phew, because he's off the hook, at least as far as the death penalty is concerned. But look at the end of verse 19. He still must pay for whatever loss has been incurred as a result of his sin. In this case, he must pay for the man's lost wages. The guy couldn't work while he was bedridden. And so he, he must pay basically his wage for those days, and he must pay his hospital bills. That's restitution. By the way, if you want a handy little phrase by which you can remember kind of the, the gist of restitution, then I would suggest that one that's at the end of verse 19, where it says, and shall have him fully healed. He shall have him fully healed. Now, of course, literally, that's a reference to the hospital bills. But figuratively, I think that's the essence of restitution. It's to repair the situation so that a person is fully healed from it. It's to restore the victim of sin to a state of wholeness, if you will. Now, another category of circumstances that require uh, restitution is liability. And there's a couple of examples given in verses 33 to 36. The first case is uh, where a man digs open a pit or opens up an existing pit 
that's a common enough experience in their society. It was an agricultural society. They were in an arid environment, so there was lots of need for wells and cisterns to be dug, you know, something that could catch water during the rainy season and then retain it uh, so that they could water their livestock throughout the year. This is the kind of thing that Joseph's brothers threw him into. They were, they were out kind of everywhere in the wilderness. And if it was used properly, that pit is a lifesaver, right? It's, it's a source of water. But if it's not used properly, like if it's not covered in between uses, it could be deadly. A donkey or an ox or a person could, could very easily just be walking by and fall into that pit. And in the case of, e even if, you know, you think the best case scenario, they break a leg, you think about that when it comes to animals. Um, that's, that's often, especially in the case of large animals, something that they're not able to recover from. And so they would have to be um, euthanized. And so, so if, all, if that happened or something similar to that happened, then the one who dug the pit was liable. The, the one who failed to cover over the pit was liable and he needed to make restoration to the animal's owner. He can keep the dead one, but he has to give the full value or another animal as a replacement for the one that, that died as a result of his carelessness. And that maybe raises uh, a question in your mind. Maybe you're thinking, well, yeah, wasn't that just an accident? Well, I suppose. But it was an accident that came as a result of the pit digger's carelessness. And whether he forgot to put the lid on it or whether he says, you know, ah, who cares? He is still liable. He needs to make it right with the person who suffered the loss at his hands. Now, in verse 35, you have a situation that is really no one's fault. It's the animal's fault, but you can't really blame animals for being animal-like. So one ox butts another ox so that it dies. Which owner is responsible? Well, neither, or both. I don't know. I don't know how you would answer that. But the point is that it's beyond their control, and they need to wait, work together to to make the best reparation possible. The Lord commands that they split the dead one because it's, it's hide and its meat is still valuable and then sell the live one, you know, the, the offending ox and split the proceeds between them. And I think that, that represents a very equitable solution. It's one that makes the very best of a bad situation. It kind of evens out the loss um, for, from those two guys. However, if the offending ox has a bit of a reputation for being ornery and has, uh, you know, been known to headbutt quite a bit, then the owner needs to make full restitution to the owner of the, of the dead ox. In that case, the owner of the ornery ox had a responsibility to keep that thing penned up and away from people and other people's oxen. 
in that case, he is liable. Now, as we come to chapter 22, the cases are ratcheting up a bit. We were talking about accidental stuff and animal assaults, and now we're talking about outright theft. Now, now we're talking about a case where a man steals another man's ox or sheep. And you might be wondering, what, why all this preoccupation with animals? Well, you've got to think, for the Israelites who are leaving Egypt after having been enslaved for four centuries, they're leaving Egypt on their way to the promised land. Their animals are the most important possessions that they have. I, in the Ten Commandments, you remember that oxen and donkeys are listed among the neighbor's property that they would be tempted to covet. We have a hard time relating to that. I don't know if any of us have ever coveted a donkey or an ox before, but, but it would be a very pressing temptation in that culture because they're incredibly valuable. They could be sold for a good price. They could be kept and uh, put to work doing valuable labor. It would be very tempting to covet your neighbor's animals. And in the absence of fences, it would be very easy to steal your neighbor's animals. They kind of have a tendency to wander anyway. And they could very easily blend into your own herd. Or if you wanted to get rid of the evidence, you could, you know, kill the thing for food or you could sell it for money. But this would be a huge loss, as we've said, for the rightful owner. In the case of an ox, it, you know, it took years to train the thing and to feed the thing uh, so that it was strong enough to do the kind of heavy lifting that you needed an ox to do. And even sheep are extremely valuable um, for their reproductive abilities, for the fact that you could um, use their wool, you know, spin it for clothing or whatever. It's no little thing. This is the point I want you to understand. It's no small thing to steal an animal from a family. And in this case, the thief, and the text here is presuming that that thief is caught, must pay the kind of restitution that takes all of this lost productivity and all of this damage into account. We'll say more about that in a few minutes. In the meantime, the passage just kind of goes on to outline other cases, like what to do when um, theft or loss takes place when you're looking after other people's property, when they've gone away on a journey, there's no banks or you know, safety deposit bo boxes. They, they entrust their neighbor with the care of their animals or their valuable property. What happens in those cases when that item that is stolen from you that you're looking after for someone else? Or what happens when you've borrowed someone's property um, to use it and then something happens to it? What happens when you rent uh, an animal for work? Uh, what, what, what are the rules there? And the bottom line here is, because I don't want to get into all of the weeds with you, you're, you're able to read that on your own and understand it. The bottom line is, that insofar as that loss or that theft is your responsibility because, um, well, because it's your responsibility or because you've been careless, the, 
the law requires that you make it right with them. That's the point. What's, what's required whenever there's sin or carelessness is not just repentance, but also restitution. And so let's look in the third place at the how. How do you make full restitution? And I, I suppose that the first question that we could ask along these lines is, to whom should you make restitution? The obvious answer probably by this point is probably very clear to you, right? It's to the victim. You pay restitution to the victim, to the person who has sustained the loss or the damage or the suffering that's, that you've caused. Now, I say that that's obvious, but apparently not. I, d I don't want to get off on a rant here. It would be very easy to, but I, let me just, can I at least note that our, our own justice system seems to have missed this point entirely? You know, we, we view crimes as chiefly being against the state. And so when people are fined, and a fine is a sort of penalty, it's a sort of restitution, but that money goes to the government. And what does our justice system do with thieves? Well, I'm actually not even sure anymore. I, I shouldn't have a asked that question because I don't know what the answer is. It's, it's always changing. Um, but it used to be that we imprisoned them. In other words, we gave them room and board valued at something like $36,000 a year, a bill that is footed by the taxpayers. Here's, here's what God's law stipulated. Look at verse 3 of chapter 22. Not, you'll notice not a word is spoken about jail time. Rather, the it says the thief shall surely pay full restitution. And if he can't pay, if he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. He shall enter that kind of relationship that we looked at last week where someone else would pay his debt and then he would become their indentured servant. Now, I'm, I'm aware that even to suggest that might strike some of you as, as cruel and unusual and inhumane. But I, I think I can guarantee you that these Israelites would think that our system is cruel and unusual and inhumane to the actual victim of the crime. You know, the, the primary goal of our justice system seems to be to heal the criminal Whereas in biblical justice, it's, it's the victim that needs to be made whole. Well then, how can we make it right with a victim? And we could talk about two aspects of our restitution. We could talk about its quantity and its quality. As for its quantity, the amount varies. In the case of a thief who's caught red-handed with the sheep still in his possession, the restitution is to be double. You can see that at the end of verse 4. And it seems simple enough, but I, I just have to admit to you that I'm not exactly sure if that means that he owes the victim 
one more sheep plus the return of the original sheep, or whether the return of the sheep is assumed here and then he owes two more sheep on top of that. I'm not sure which of, which of those it is. Maybe, maybe one of you could help me with that. But either way, it, it represents a healing for the victim and at the same time, it inflicts a bit of an ouch on the thief. And if the thief killed or sold the stolen sheep, then full restoration meant that he owed the victim four sheep. Or in the case of an ox, five, five times that, five oxen. And the full quantity of restitution is, in many ways, dependent on the nature of the loss. So, for example, in the case outlined in verse 6, where a farmer starts a fire, that's a very common occurrence in those days. And, and even in our day, you know, the farmers in the flats behind us, they, they do that on a fa fairly regular basis. But it's very possible, especially in an arid climate, for that fire to spread quickly and to, as the text says, break out into the neighbor's field um, where their grain was standing or where their grain was harvested and stacked. And the fire would then just quickly burn that up and consume it and it would be a massive loss for that neighbor. And if that happened, God's law says that that person who started the fire must make full restitution. Full, I take it, to mean you know, depending on how much material was destroyed. That's how much material he ought to restore. Now we can talk not just about the quantity of restitution, but also the quality. So look, for example, at the case in verse 5. Here it's not a fire that breaks out and consumes the neighbor's field. It's your livestock. And whether that's intentional or unintentional, you must make restitution for your neighbor's loss and look at what it says from the best in your own field and in your own vineyard. In other words, restitution requires that you pay, that you repay with a high quality replacement, not just kind of your leftover junk. It's funny, animals have a way of of finding and eating the very best grain. And so uh, it's, it makes sense that you would want to make restitution with the very best that you have to offer. I think Pastor Roger Campbell sums this, uh, everything that I'm trying to say, I think he sums it up best in his book called Justice Through Restitution, when he points out that in each of these biblical cases, the quote, the result was that the victim was restored to a better position than before his loss, and the lawbreaker was punished by having to make right his wrongs in a manner that cost him more than his potential gain. So, so that there is, in restitution, both a punitive aspect, which then hopefully becomes a strong deterrent, against others who might consider that same course of action, and also a restorative aspect. 
And what I hope strikes you as you begin to understand these laws and their intention is just how wise the Lord is. I think it's fair to say that most modern people view these Old Testament laws as arbitrary, that at, that's kind of the best spin that people put on them. They're arbitrary at best. They're draconian at worst. We believe the, the lawgiver is, is to, you know, he's pretty petty, demanding. Maybe he's even a little bit sadistic. That's what people think about the God of the Old Testament as they encounter him through his law. And at the same time, these people, and shall I say we, we fancy ourselves to be wise and enlightened and armed with the latest sociological research. We have all of these wonderful ideas for prison reform. And, and look at all of the, the wonderful results. It's almost like if you put lawmakers in a room and gave them the dystopian task of creating a system that would guarantee the most looting and the most property damage and the most violence possible, they, they couldn't come up with a better approach than what we currently have in, in place. And, and we pat ourselves on the back for being sophisticated and being compassionate. But friends, it's the Lord God who is wise and compassionate. And that leads us to our fourth and final aspect of restitution, and that is the why. The why. I think you can usually predict with a high degree of accuracy certain things about lawmakers from the laws that they make. So you can guess, for example, this isn't true across the board, but I think it's true in, in, for the most part, that the, the movers and the shakers behind prison reform are, pe are people that live in gated communities. And if you were to guess that the majority of people who are for mass immigration and open borders, um, that, that these are, are the people that know next to nothing about economics, then you probably, there's a really good chance that you would be right. What can we tell about a God who sets forth laws requiring restitution? Well, for one, we can tell that he's very realistic. And as we've said, he, you can tell that he's a very wise God. He's not naive. You can tell that he's a compassionate God. And you can tell that he's a God of justice. By that I mean he's, his very nature demands that sin and loss and hurt be paid for. And if you're asking why restitution, it seems to me that a primary answer has to be because it reveals to us so much of God's own character. This is who God is. And furthermore, the Apostle Paul tells us that the law is a tutor that leads us to Christ. And that means that in some way, the practice of restitution is, is pointing us to, it's preparing us for the gospel. Come to think of it, Mike Holmes is probably guilty of copyright infringement. 
every time he says, we're going to make it right. Because from the very beginning, that has been God's brand. From, from the instant that Adam and Eve destroyed their home because of, because of their sin and disobedience, the Lord God was already on the ground comforting that couple by clothing them with the skins of a sacrificed animal and by promising them the, the savior that would come to restore and to repair and to rebuild. He said that the seed of the woman would one day come and set everything to right. And we know that seed to be our savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He came to live a perfect life and then to die in full payment of the debt that we owed because of our sin. Friends, can you conceive of a greater payment in terms of its quantity and its quality than the blood of God's own son? And so we sing, come behold the wondrous mystery, Christ the Lord upon the tree. In the stead of ruined sinners hangs the lamb in victory. See the price of our redemption. See the father's plan unfold, bringing many sons to glory. Grace unmeasured, love untold. And if you, if you are indeed humbled by the price of your own redemption, think about what it cost for you to be free and forgiven. If you're truly bowled over by the dimensions of grace and love that you've experienced in the gospel, then it, it should have a couple of different effects on you as far as restitution is concerned. For one, it will make you slow to require it when you're the victim of sin. The gospel will make you slow to require restitution when you're the victim of sin. When you know and understand something of the depths of your own depravity, when you realize how much you have been freely forgiven, that, that ought to make us very slow to demand payment from others when they sin against you. As one who has had every sin, past, present, and future, fully covered by the blood of the Lamb, you ought to be able to let love cover a multitude of sins and hurts and losses and sorrows that have been inflicted upon you. For example, if someone strikes you on the cheek, and by the way, doesn't that sound an awful lot like Old Testament case law? If someone, if someone strikes you on the cheek, but it's not. It's, it's not Old Testament case law. This is new covenant living under the kingdom of Christ. We're commanded to turn him your other cheek. The gospel not only makes us slow to require restitution when we're sinned against, but it also makes us quick to pay it when we are the offender. The classic case here is the story of Zacchaeus, whose uh, story Glenn read for us earlier. Again, I'm not going to try to redo everything that Glenn's done for us today, but just recall that this was a bad dude. 
not only was he short, but as a, that's not why he was bad. <laughs> but he was short, let's just say. This, this is how we know the guy. He was uh, a wee little man. But I'm saying not only was he short, but as the chief tax collector, he was shorting all of his fellow Jews every year around April 15th. You know, he was gouging them. He, he was stealing from them, actually, and all under the guise of legitimate business, you know, collecting taxes for Rome. That is until the day that he met Jesus. And Zacchaeus was transformed by the power of the gospel. He himself was made whole on that glorious day. And his very first instinct of discipleship, what was it? Restitution. A reborn Zacchaeus said, Behold, Lord, half of all my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, behold, I restore it fourfold. Basically, the maximum quantity, more than the maximum quantity. He, he restored it. He made full restitution. He, he wanted to make it right because he himself had been made right by the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to ask you, is that your instinct as well? D does anything in your past or present require restitution? You might be thinking, well, yeah, but that was way back in my past. You know, the person's probably forgotten about it. Let me ask you this. Do you think that in his efforts to make things right with those he had sinned against, that Zacchaeus only went back like one or two tax years? It's, it seems to me that this would have been a, a very powerful, even undeniable piece of evidence that a miracle had taken place in this guy's life. He had a reputation, and, and now he's going to gain a reputation for, for being someone that has been humbled by the grace of the gospel and, and ready and willing to make things right with all those that he had defrauded. And I suspect the same might be true for you. I suspect that you making things right, be it monetarily or relationally, or otherwise, would be a very powerful testimony to the greatness and the power of the gospel. Why restitution? It's so that we can proclaim in a tangible way the substance and the impact of the cross of Christ. So, friends, let us now live it. Let's, let's live this way. Let's do this out of love for Jesus, by the grace of God, and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen.